So now we are going to um, turn our attention to God's word as we've been talking about directly there. And so if you have a Bible with you, uh, please turn to the, the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. If you don't have a Bible with you, feel free to borrow one. There are some in these black chair pockets and at the ends and maybe middle as well, the side aisles. There should be one near you. And if you don't own a Bible, please feel free to keep that one. We're turning to the book of Ephesians that, that comes in the New Testament after Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians. We're turning to Ephesians chapter 3 beginning in verse 1. If you're using one of these Bibles we provided, that's on page 837, and it'll be on the screen behind me, I hope, as well. Will you follow along as I read? For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. We pray with me. Our Father, even, even before we turn to your word, we want to, we want to, before you, remember those who have served our country in the military, those who have, um, who have enlisted, who have given of their time, who have given of their lives um, to serve us, to protect us. We, we give you thanks for everyone who has served. We remember them before you. We give you thanks, Father. Um, thank you for using them for the good of this nation. And as we turn to your word, Father, we come to you as we do every week. We come needy. We come needy of understanding. We need you to help us understand. We need you to work in our hearts. We need you to, to, to do a work. We know that this word is for something, that you said this because there's something you want to get done in our lives and in our church. And so we ask you this morning that you would come and you would speak, that you would have your way among us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, many of you know that I have have two sons, a five-year-old and a two-year-old. And one of the entertaining parts of having small kids is seeing what tasks they think are a treat and what tasks they think are a chore. So um, yesterday morning, our family has this, we have this, 
habit, this tradition, that every Saturday in the morning, I take the kids out to get donuts so that Kim can get a little peace and quiet in the house. And so yesterday, I said to the kids, I said, all right, who's ready to get donuts? And one of my sons was just like, mm-hmm. I I don't really care about donuts. I'd rather just stay here. And I was like, what, what is wrong with you that getting a donut sounds like a chore? And yet later in the morning when I said, okay, anybody want to help me take the garbage out? You would have thought that I was inviting them to Disneyland, right? They, like, they could not wait to get their shoes on to go outside to take out the garbage. And one thing I realized a while ago was that I could, I could give them a little help in, in seeing a chore as a treat, if I could make it a part of a story that they loved, okay? So, so sometimes they just have to clean up the playroom because I'm their dad and that's what we do. But sometimes, when the playroom is really messy, I will make it a mission for the Paw Patrol. Now, Paw Patrol, if you don't have children this age, it's a specific demographic. Paw Patrol is a, sh- it's a cartoon about puppies that rescue people. And they have little hats and little cars, and it's, it's very entertaining for small humans. And so I will say to the children, I will, I will, you know, in their hearing, I will say, Paw Patrol to the lookout. And that, that's their cue. They know they have to run to the playroom. And then I'll, I'll, I'll tell them their mission. I'll say, Pups, we have an emergency. The toys all over the floor of the hallway are going to make somebody trip. So, so what I need for you to do, and then I'll give them jobs, you know, specific things to get put away, and, and they will think that it's the best thing that has ever happened to them. Seeing the activity as, as part of a story they love gives it such meaning that what was a have-to becomes a get-to. And the Apostle Paul, in our passage, sees as a get-to something that we often see as a have-to, speaking the good news about Jesus to others. Those of us who are Christians, who have trusted Jesus, know that part of being a disciple is making a disciple. Part of trusting Jesus is speaking about Jesus to people who don't already know him, not in order to shame them or judge them or bully them, but because we know that forgiveness and new life come through trusting in Jesus, and you can't trust Jesus until you know who he is and what he's done. So we're called to speak about him to our family and our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers, so they can know him too. And for some of you, that comes naturally, right? I've got a good friend in this church who's like that. He's an extrovert, He's never met a stranger, and nothing is more natural to him than to just talk about what he cares about with people that he loves, people he knows, people he meets at the, you know, the deli counter in the grocery store. So introverts like me just bewilder him. He has no idea why this is hard. But for some of you, this is hard. It's, it's, you, you know that you're supposed to do this, but when you think about it, your stomach just begins to churn. You just don't want to. It's awkward. You don't know what to say. You don't think it's going to do any good. It's a have to. But for Paul, it's a privilege. He calls it a gift. And God put this passage in your Bible so we can begin to experience it that way as well. So we're going to see in this, in this passage this morning that the greatness of the gospel makes it a gift to speak it and suffer for it. The greatness of the gospel makes it a gift to speak and suffer for the gospel. We're going to see three aspects of the gospel in this passage. The greatness of it, the gift of speaking it, and the glory of of suffering for it. So first, let's look at the greatness of the gospel. God's enemies become his people through faith. So this is what Paul says in verse 1. He says, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. And then, you, does your Bible have a dash there? He just, he breaks off his thought. And he comes back to it later, but he breaks off and thinks, I should unpack what it means that I'm a prisoner for, on behalf of the Gentiles. I gotta, I gotta unpack what I mean. And so he says in verse 2 that 
that the stewardship of God's grace was given to me for you. God gave him grace meant for Gentile believers like the Ephesians. He says in verse 3 that the mystery was made known to me by revelation. He says, so, so here, I, I read to my kids every night before bed. My older son Joshua has graduated from picture books to chapter books. And one of his favorite series is called the A to Z Mysteries. And it's about these three elementary age kids who solve mysteries around their hometown of Greenlawn, Connecticut. So that is not the kind of mystery Paul is talking to. A mystery in the Bible is not a whodunit. It's not something where you have to sort of find the clues and crack the case. A mystery in the Bible is something hidden, something secret that is revealed to you, that God makes known. He says, um, look at verse 4. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it's now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So it was, it was always there, this mystery, what, what it is, it was always true, it was always there, but, but it wasn't made known, and then all of a sudden, God by his Spirit made it public. He, he made it known to Paul, and what is it? Verse 6, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So before this, people would have, basically everybody would have given you the same definition of what it means to be the people of God. The people of God are the Jews. They're Jewish. It's the Israelites. It's the people who are descended from Abraham. It's the people who worship at the temple. It's the people who keep the law. That's, that's the people of God. And Gentiles, not, who were not Jewish, they could, they could convert to Judaism. They could be circumcised, and they could take the law, and they could try to keep the law but they could never come all the way in. So Ryan's talked in previous weeks, as we've been looking at Ephesians, about how there was a, a section in the temple courts beyond which Gentiles couldn't go. They, they weren't full members. They weren't all the way in. They weren't equals to the Jews. But Paul says God is doing something new, something he always planned, but has now revealed. And he says it in verse 6. He uses, it's, it's not entirely clear in the, in the translation we're using, which is really good. ESV is great. Um, But he uses three words that have the same prefix in the Greek that means together. So how it reads is, this mystery is that the Gentiles are heirs together, members together, partakers together of the promise in Christ Jesus. He's emphasizing over and over that, that Gentiles are now full members. They're all the way in. They're not second class. There are no second class Christians. There are no second class people of God. Everyone who's accepted is fully accepted, and they're fully accepted because what defines God's people is not keeping the law. It's not doing everything right. It's faith. So you, you may have never been kept up at night just like tossing and turning restless and, and just wondering, oh, can Gentiles become the people of God? That may, that may not be the question that has kept you up at night, but you may in quiet moments have wondered, can I become one of God's people? Am I one of God's people? What does it take? Does it take a perfect record? Because I don't have that. My, my record's not even pretty good. I've done awful things to people who deserved better. I have stood at the brink of decisions I knew were wrong, and I did them anyway. I've gone back again and again to habits that are destroying my family. Is that you? 
then what was good news to the Gentiles is equally good news to you. Their full acceptance didn't come through doing everything right. It didn't come through finally breaking the bad habits, finally getting their life together, finally reconciling all broken relationships. Paul tells us how it came at the end of verse 6. He says, it came through the gospel, through the good news about Jesus, not, not through what they had done. It came through what Jesus had done. So all of us here, right, even if that didn't resonate with you, all of us here have fallen short of God's standard, right? God made, he made the world, he made all of us, and he made us for a purpose, right? We're accountable to him. He's the king. We belong to him. We owe him our allegiance and our obedience and our worship, and he's told us how to live. He's told us through his word, he's told us through our conscience, and we've all said to him, no, I don't want to do that. I, I want to live how I want to live. I want to spend my time on me. I want to spend my money on me. I want to pursue whatever makes me happy. And even, even those of us who maybe, maybe you grew up in church, maybe, maybe your background is very religious, even in that, we often do that for ourselves. We do it to look good in the eyes of people. We do it so we can feel superior to other people. We do it maybe to put God in our debt, maybe chalk up some points that we can spend on other stuff later. Left to ourselves, we're all against God, and we deserve his condemnation because God cannot and will not let sin go unpunished. But the gospel is that God's son, Jesus, came into the world and lived the perfect life that we couldn't. At every moment, he chose righteousness. Every decision, he chose to please God perfectly, always. And at the end of his life, at the end of his perfect life, he took the condemnation we deserved and died on the cross in our place so we can be forgiven for all of our sins and brought all the way home to God. So we can have all of God's love and none of his judgment. Jesus did that for you. That's the gospel. And when you trust that good news, when you put your faith in Jesus, at that moment, what he says in verse 6 becomes true of you. You become an heir with the rest of God's people. You become an heir. That When Jesus comes back, he's going to make this world new. He's going to rid it of sin and death and fear forever. And if you have trusted in Jesus, you're an heir. That belongs to you. That's coming for you. He makes you a full member, that you belong to the people of God. You belong to God's family. He makes you a full partaker of the promise in Christ Jesus. Here's what Paul says in, verse, in chapter 1, verse 13. He says, In Christ Jesus you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So the promise is that God's Spirit, God's own presence, will come and live in everyone who trusts in him. And Paul says that through the gospel, you are a partaker together of that. that that's true for you. This is the greatness of the gospel. God's enemies become his people through faith. If you trust in Jesus, God loves you overwhelmingly. He accepts you completely. You never need to fear his condemnation. You're all the way in forever. The good news is great news. So why is it so hard to talk about it? Let's look at, secondly, the gift of speaking the gospel. God uses our weakness to show his wisdom. So look at verse 7. Paul says, Of this gospel I was made a minister. And that just means servant. Paul became a servant of the gospel. And this is what he said in verse 8. This is what it means to serve the gospel. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach 
to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And this is the thing that makes us uncomfortable, right? This is the thing that churns our stomach. Speaking about Jesus to people who don't already know him, and in fairness, that's unwelcome by a lot of people today, right? It seems so narrow to to think that what you believe is better than what other people believe. And and some people are going to welcome it. We don't want to paint too bleak of a picture, but if you try to speak about Jesus, there's going to be pushback. But that's not new, right? Think about the pushback that Paul experienced. So Paul, before he met Jesus, he was... Uh, a Jewish leader. He was a Pharisee. And he was, he was known, he was famous for being zealously opposed to Christianity. And then he became a Christian. And then he started preaching to Gentiles. You think Paul didn't get pushback? And yet, what does he say about speaking the gospel? He says that he was made a servant according to the gift of God's grace. He said it was a gift He said that this grace was given to me. He says it's a gift. Does it feel like a gift to you? Now, our call is not Paul's call, right? He was the apostle to the Gentiles. He played a one-time role. That's not what we are. And yet the gospel has come to us just as it came to him. And everyone who receives the gospel becomes a servant of the gospel. We're called to speak. And a a lot of time, we just don't want to. So, Let's look together at what Paul says here and see, see what fuels his excitement and see if God will use it to give us a fresh passion. So, so consider a couple possible reasons why it doesn't thrill you that you get to speak about Jesus. Maybe grace has become ordinary to you. So Paul is amazed by it. Did you see what he calls himself in verse 8? He said that he's the very least of all the saints. The very least. Saints in, saints in the Bible just means God's people. God's holy people. So he says, I am the least of all Christians. Why? Why does he say that? Well, because before he trusted Jesus, he was a persecutor of the church. Before he trusted Jesus, he, he had Christians arrested and thrown in jail. He approved of their execution. He was so amazed, he couldn't get over it, that he had been Jesus' enemy, and then Jesus stopped him and forgave him and loved him, and then made him a preacher of the grace that changed him. He never got over it. And look at how he describes the gospel in verse 8. He says that it's the unsearchable riches of Christ. Riches so great that you could never search them out. They're unfathomable. You could never get to the end of it. It's as far as the eye can see. And he's talking about everything we get when we trust in Jesus. Forgiveness of all of our sins, past, present, and future. Eternal life with God. The Holy Spirit inside of us changing us from the inside out. All of God's love. A, A family. The church where before they were without God, without hope, without life in him, they have it all. The gospel isn't a list of things to do. It's not a scolding about how you need to get your life together. The gospel is the unsearchable riches of Christ. We get to share with people everything that comes to them through faith in Jesus because of what he's done. And so if you're not excited to speak about it, maybe it's become ordinary to you. Or maybe you're not confident in God's power in you. He says in verse 7 that he was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. So God didn't choose Paul because he was an amazing speaker. He didn't choose Paul because Paul had been like exercising for years to get himself ready for the rigors of living on the road. He chose Paul by grace. Everything Paul became, he became by God's power. God changed him. God made him new. God made him 
what he was. Paul was not a great speaker. He was not impressive. And yet God used him profoundly. So what about you gives you pause? Maybe you're new to Christianity. You're afraid you're, afraid you're going to be asked a question you don't know how to answer. Or maybe, maybe you're a massive introvert. And so when I say you ought to speak to people about Jesus, that's roughly equivalent to you ought to climb Mount Everest. It just feels like I, I'm never going to be able to do that. That's just so unlike my personality. But do you know that God wants to work in you with power? Will you ask him to do that? If you don't see speaking the gospel as a gift, maybe you're not confident in God's power, or maybe you're not seeing the big picture. Look, look at verse 10 to see the purpose of Paul's preaching. He says, So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Okay, so I want you to imagine that you're watching a sporting match of your choice, right? It could be basketball, football, it could be rugby. I don't, I don't follow sports, and if I try to get specific, I'm just going to embarrass myself. So I want you to pick your favorite, right? Get your team in mind, and I want you to imagine that you're watching this match on television, and, and the coach of the team you're, you're supporting is, is making decisions, he's calling plays, he's making substitutions of players, and the TV commentators are just saying, this guy, what is he doing? He, he does not know what he's doing. He is going to blow this match by these calls that he's making. And, and the other team, you can see the other team, they're starting to get a little confident, right? They're starting to grin between plays. They know that this thing is turning. They, they can taste victory. And right then, the tide just turns, right? And your team just runs the field. Your team just trounces the opponents. The game is over. And the commentators have to admit that, that the coach had a wisdom that they couldn't see, a wisdom that they didn't have, that he, he knew things, he saw things that they didn't see, and so he was able to pull off an amazing victory. Paul says that now God is showing his wisdom to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places through the church. So the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, that's just a way that Paul talks about angels. Um, angels that serve God, but even more so angels that are opposed to God, demons. And he's saying that God is showing his wisdom to them through the church. So how does the church show God's wisdom? It shows the beauty and the power of his plan for history. So God made humanity at the beginning, right? He made two people, Adam and Eve, and they were going to be the beginning of humanity to fill the earth, right? God wanted to fill the earth with people who loved him and loved one another. And in that first generation, they they strayed from him, they disobeyed him, they broke his law, and everything was fractured, right? And the the world was just filled with violence, it was filled with um, unbelief, nobody loved God, nobody loved each other, but God still wanted a people, and so he chose Israel, and he made Israel his people. And no matter what he did, whether it was rescuing them from slavery, whether it was giving them a land, whether it was giving them a law, whether it was sending prophets, no matter what he did, they always turned from him. They, they never got it right. And so God finally sent his son. Jesus came into the world, and instead of, instead of receiving him with love and obedience and repentance, they killed him. And, and God's enemies must have thought, that's it, right? That is the decisive blow. God is never going to come back from that. I, there's a song I love. The lyrics go, Now the demons, they danced in the darkness when that last ragged breath left his lungs. 
and they reveled and howled in the war that they thought he had won, they had won. But then in the dark of the grave, the stone rolled away in the still of the dawn on the greatest of days. So they thought, we have killed God's son, it's over. And they were totally wrong. Because through Jesus' death and resurrection, now anyone can come to him through faith, be born again, become his child, and be changed from the inside out. God really will make a people everywhere on earth that love him and love one another. And as this message spreads through the whole world, as you know, you think about it right now, and you know, over this 24 hours of Sunday, everywhere in the world, groups of people are gathering just like us, who would otherwise, they would want nothing to do with each other, but they're gathering because they all love Jesus. They're gathering, they're seeing, they're gathering to love one another everywhere in the world. The gospel is triumphing. It's going everywhere, and it shows the wisdom of God. God is running the field. He's so wise in what he's done. And a friend of mine observed me recently, just almost as an aside. He said, you know, we all want to be a part of a story we, we all want to feel like we're, we're an important part of a story where something really crucial is happening. This is why we resonate with stories like, um, I'm going to go to my default, you guys know that I'm nerdy, it's Star Wars, right? That's why we resonate with Luke Skywalker, who's like, you know, he's working for his uncle in a moisture farm in the Outer Rim, and then he's just swept up until suddenly he's like this key figure in the rebellion against the Empire, or Harry Potter, right? who one day is this orphan living under the stairs, and the next day he's this wizard who's like the hope of the world against he who must not be named. And, and this passage says that that's what we have. It says history is culminating right now with this good news about Jesus going everywhere in the world, and we have a part to play. We have a speaking role in this story. We play a part every time we choose to live for God instead of for ourselves, when we obey him instead of sin, when we, when we praise him through our grief, when we trust him against all hope, and when we speak. So if you're reluctant to speak the gospel, maybe you're not seeing the big picture. Okay, so, so let's say that you're persuaded that you, you should be speaking. What, how does that look? I mean, at work, should we just kind of neglect our responsibilities and just kind of go desk to desk, just sit down at the desk, you know, pass a tract, try to have a conversation about Jesus with everyone you work with. No, that's not how this looks. What you should do at work is you should do excellent work, and you should really care about the people you work with. You should really love them, and then look for opportunities. Look for opportunities to speak. So eat with your coworkers sometimes instead of at your desk, right? Go places when they invite you. Have them around for a braai. Be there for them when their parents are ill, when their marriage is in trouble, when they're distressed about their kids. Really love them, and then look for chances to speak about how the unsearchable riches of Christ meet their deepest needs. And, and maybe your workplace is at home. So at home, make the gospel part of normal conversation with your kids. When they disobey, don't just, don't just punish them, but help them to see how their bad choices show them how much they need God's forgiveness and a new heart from Jesus. Let them see you talking about the gospel with people you have in their home. Let them grow up thinking that it's normal. Meet your neighbors. Maybe join the PTA. Go to your kids' sports. Be around people who don't know Jesus. Genuinely love them and look for opportunities to speak. 
Now, this may make it seem too easy, because there will be pushback. So how should we think about that? Let's look finally at the glory of suffering for the gospel. God uses it for the good of others. Look at verse 13, the last verse in this passage. He says, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. So this is, I don't know if you, if you noticed this, that's the first thing in the whole passage Paul has asked them to do. Before this, Paul has been talking about himself, but where he comes down to, what he lands on is, what it's all been leading up to is, he doesn't want them to lose heart over his suffering. Remember he said in verse 1 that he's a prisoner for Christ Jesus, right? On behalf of the Gentiles. So Paul, in his mission to get the gospel to Gentiles, he's, he's landed in a Roman prison. And, and he's concerned that they would lose heart because maybe they're wondering. Now, Paul has just been, you know, what we know is that, that God's plan is for the gospel to go all over the world. And Paul's a really important part of this plan. And Paul's in prison. That can't be good, right? Like, if Paul's in prison, does that mean that God's plan has failed? Does that mean that something's not happening that's supposed to be happening? We're, they're, they're in danger of losing heart, of being discouraged by Paul's imprisonment. And Paul says, no, don't lose heart. My suffering isn't a defeat. He says, it's your glory. So Paul's mission in life is the glory of the Gentiles, right? When, when Jesus comes back, everyone who has trusted in him, the Bible says, will be glorified. They'll be transformed into the likeness of Jesus in all his goodness, in all his beauty, that we'll be, we'll be free forever from sin and fear and sickness and death. We'll be glorified. That's how the Bible talks about our glory. And everything Paul does is focused on the Gentiles coming to share in that. He says in 2 Timothy 2.10, I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So all of Paul's suffering, and he suffered a lot All of it was for their glory, for their good, that they would trust in Jesus and be changed to look like him. All of it was to bring to them the unsearchable riches of Christ. So so prison for Paul was a no-brainer. He would gladly suffer that, right? Paul was, he was beaten and he was stoned and he was whipped and he was shipwrecked. And all those things, Paul would say, "That's, that's nothing. I'm glad to suffer that because of how much I want for you to trust in Christ and share his glory. And this is, this is what gives him such, such fuel for that. Look in verse 11. He says, This was according to the eternal purpose that God has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So, so Paul can see all that God has done. There's all this wisdom that he's displayed. And he said, I, I can see that God's plan is being accomplished perfectly. So when I suffer... I don't wonder, is God failing? I don't wonder, is, is God's plan being thwarted? Everything God wants to happen will happen. God's, God's wisdom is on display. So, so when I suffer, I know there must be a reason. There must be a reason why this is happening. It must be for your glory. It must be the, for the good of people because God's plan is being accomplished. And he knows when he suffers that it doesn't mean that God's left him. Right? It's easy that when you suffer to wonder... Has God forgotten me? Does he see me? Does he know what I'm going through? But Paul says no. He says we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Even when Paul's in jail, he knows 
that he can go to God whenever he wants. He has boldness and access with confidence because he's trusted in Jesus. So his sufferings, he knows his sufferings aren't God failing him. He knows his sufferings aren't God leaving him. And so he can rejoice in his sufferings knowing that it's the good of people. It's their glory. Paul could face his own suffering with joy and confidence because he knew it was for the good of others. What a challenge. Can you face your hardship like that? Especially hardship that comes because you're, you're seeking to speak the gospel. So what is the eternal glory of others worth to you? What would you suffer for it? For the eternal glory of your family. For the eternal glory of your coworkers. Is it worth doing some hard things? Is it worth being the one to make the conversation awkward by trying to push past trivial things to really talk about what people think about heaven and hell and Jesus? Is it worth getting a reputation for being ignorant and intolerant, even if you're not? Is it worth being the butt of a joke? Is it worth opening your life and your home to people whose lives are messy and who really need love? Is it worth maybe moving somewhere where there aren't dozens of churches for the sake of people who've never heard any of this. If we're going to grow in this, it can't come from just trying harder. It can't come from mere willpower. It has to come by grace. By grace, we have the unsearchable riches of Christ. And we've been swept into this great story of history, of God gathering a global people to put his wisdom on cosmic display. And you're part of the story now. You have a speaking role, and God offers you the power to play your part well for his glory and the eternal good of others. So let's pray for his help. Our Father, we come to you praising you for your grace. We come to you praising you that, um, that our approach to you is secure, not through us being good, not through us keeping all the rules, but through Jesus who did it all for us. Your son paid it all. He died on the cross in our place. He rose from the dead for us and now you have made the way open to you so we can come all the way in, so we can be your children forever, so we can be your people. Father, I pray even as we sing, would you help us to rejoice in what Jesus has done for us, what you have brought to us, the the unsearchable riches of Christ. And would you give us such love for you and such gratitude for what you've given us that we would gladly speak the gospel, gladly suffer for the gospel, that we we would want those we love to know these riches as well. Father, I'm asking that even now that you would work in our hearts, that you would make us the people you want us to be. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.